This is the Monday, August 10th, 2015 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. You're listening to The History Author Show on iHeartRadio, iTunes, or wherever else you've found us on the internet card catalog. Three mules, two brothers, and a Jack Russell Terrier named Olive Oil. Together, they rattle 2,000 miles from Missouri to the great American Northwest in a covered wagon. This isn't the setup for a vaudeville joke, but there are plenty of laughs found on the ruts, roads, and interstates. That's right, interstates. The trip doesn't take place before the Civil War, but in our time. We can go along for the ride from the comfort of our reading chairs thanks to author Rinker Buck's New York Times bestseller, The Oregon Trail, A New American Journey. It's the first such crossing in a century, which meant our unlikely group of pioneers had to reinvent the lost art of wagon travel along the way. In his 1997 book, Flight of Passage, Rinker Buck shared another adventure, piloting a Piper PA-11 across the United States in 1966. He was just 15 at the time, and he became the youngest airman ever to complete the trip. You could follow his continuing adventures by liking him at facebook.com slash rinkerbuck. Mr. Buck grew up on the family farm in historic Morristown, New Jersey, and attended Bowdoin College in Maine. His career in journalism earned the Eugene S. Pulliam Journalism Writing Award and other accolades. So now that you know a little bit about the man behind the mules, let's meet Rinker Buck. I'm joined now on the line by Rinker Buck, author of The Oregon Trail. Mr. Buck, thank you so much for making the time to talk with us, and I hope you're sitting comfortably now after that long, bumpy ride. Oh, yeah. It's almost an act of luxury to be in a regular car with leather seats or something because on a wooden covered wagon seat, no springs on the wagon, every little bump and depression in the land you feel. I miss the covered wagon, but I don't miss the ride. (laughs) Do you still have that wagon at home? I actually sold the wagon out west, but I have another one now. Between the wagon and the mules, which I found a very good home for out west, the cost of shipping it all the way back east where I didn't have a particular need for it would have been more than um, I invested in the wagon and the mules in the first place. But they're all very comfortably settled, and I can use them whenever I want. All right, so you're right kind of uh, in the Pacific Northwest. I wanted to mention that in the northwest of the country. I'm in Idaho now. You could have the view and enjoy all the good things and the kind of camaraderie. You meet some amazing people along the way that you tell us about in the Oregon Trail. So you sort of have the best of both worlds out there. You have a comfortable chair, and (laughs) you don't have to worry about bouncing and not being able to stand. Or the mules acting up. 
Yeah, right. That Those are some great moments in the book. And I think whenever I look at horse travel, most of us look at those pictures and we see here in New York City, oh, they look beautiful, the horses and the carriages. You don't realize just how dangerous it was. And then you're dealing with mules, which I, I definitely wanted to get into. They're really a character in the story, as is your brother's dog, Olive Oil. But yes. when you're, yes. you're reading the Oregon Trail, you're saying, hey, they're not just passive animals that are going along there. They really have some say in it. Yes, well, um, mules have a larger, from the burrow side, they get a larger cranial capacity than a horse. They also have larger eyes, and they can see their rear feet, which is what makes them so sure-footed. Horses aren't able to see their rear feet. But the big thing about mules is that because they, they're half burrow, they're half wild burrow, from that feral side, they get a very strong self-preservation, self-protection instinct. And so a horse it's been domesticated so long and it's rather like a well-bred dog, you know, if you're doing what it's bred for and you ask them to do something, they do it. A mule, if you ask them to do something, they go, well, wait a minute, let's consider this here. This is a collaboration. (laughs) So they got a reputation for being ornery. And in fact, they're just as willing as any other animal if you treat them properly. Uh, But they get the reputation for being ornery because over the years, people thought, they could get more out of a mule by just kicking them or whipping them or something when they wouldn't do what you asked. And you can conquer that quite easily by just understanding if they're reluctant to do something, it means their self-preservation instinct is rising, and you have to treat that. You have to deal with that and reassure the animal that you're going to keep them safe. I talk sometimes about my days as a veterinary technician there in New Jersey at Cook College, which I'm sure you know of, having come from New Jersey and the farms there. And it reminded me also of this neighbor that I had. He recently passed away in his 90s, and he'd come from really rural Ireland, County Cork. And he said once that mules have to like you if you want them to work well for you. And I thought of him a bunch of times talking about working with the mules and getting to know them. And you're not just talking one either. You're talking three here. What did you see them when you're writing the Oregon Trail being in the narrative? You know, it's funny. I thought a lot about the narrative, but not about the mules in the narrative because it was so obvious to me what what they were. Most people, I thought, from a distance and from not knowing that much about mules, which is solved by reading this book, but because I have a whole long chapter on their history and development. But most people look at a mule, it's got these funny ears, and you can't quite get the expression on their face, and it seems like a very distant, unapproachable animal. But in fact, each of our three mules had very distinctive personalities. Beck was a great athlete and a great puller, but she was a crazy girl who would spook at anything and get frightened very easily by almost anything, and that became a problem because she'd try and shy out of her harness and everything. The other uh, female mule, Molly Mule, we called her Kate Hudson. <laughs> she basically just wanted to sit on the chase lounge all day in a bikini and look really pretty but not do anything. And she could kind of get away with that because she's a very pretty mule. And then Jake in the middle was this very steady, imperturbable guy, a very hard worker, a male mule. And he just wanted to get the job done and patiently put one foot in front of the other every day. In the various crises we had, you know, running into thunderstorms or having to go down really, really steep mountainside and stuff, those personalities emerged in various different ways to make the trip really interesting. For instance, even though Butte was lazy and never wanted to do any work, when we got to a hill, she would try and trot ahead of the others, and then they would want to keep up with her because the herd instinct is very strong with them. 
because she's basically lazy and just wants to sit on the chase lounge all day. But when she sees a hill and knows she can't get away from it, she just wants to get up over the top of it as fast as she can. And that go to the other mules to really work hard on the hills. So their personalities were actually very humanoid in a lot of ways. They reminded me of people, you know, sometimes lovable people, sometimes difficult people that you know. And they're not this distant sphinx that has no personality. Yeah, you traveled, in fact, on the trip with your brother. And I was just mentioning what we have in common, being from New Jersey and the farms and the animals. We both also have brothers named Nick that are mechanics. And I reflected a lot on that also as reading it. And that's another angle there that you take with the mules and with deciding to do this. Because as a Boy Scout, we learn, be prepared. That's the Boy Scout motto. But nobody alive literally knew how to prepare for this trip and how to do the Oregon Trail the way that you planned to do it. And so you started with a lot of the concerns of a 21st century man. And I'm thinking of your shoeshine kit, your CD player. You're very open in the book about the things that you pack. At first, your brother tries to explain this. It's a really great series of moments, the way you carry through the whole book, where the Oregon Trail really forced you to discard the modern in so many ways. And not only that, but to relearn the past, didn't it? Yes, yes. I I mean, I think I think I was just lucky in writing the book that this was the brother who decided to come along. Of course, he would be the only brother who would decide to come along because he's quite a horseman, and he's a brilliant mechanic. He can fix anything. I mean, there were times when things broke on the wagon, and he got an old piece of scrap wood behind an old barn on a ranch or an old branch or something and turned it into a wagon part. But we were very different, and what the trip was all about is learning that the intensity and the love that exists between brothers doesn't prevent conflict and personality differences. And we each had to suppress something important to us or to our personalities to make sure that this project got all the way across the Oregon Trail. It's really a great story for anybody, I think, who has that sort of relationship, whether it's a brother in blood or somebody you grew up with that you're a friend with. That kind of thing, going through stress with anybody, even if you're married. (laughs) Think about a trip to Florida, much less a trip in the Oregon Trail where you're stuffed into this bouncing wagon. It's an amazing thing you did it. And I was thinking, I usually start preparing for the interview by thinking of the cliche questions everybody asked and throwing them out or turning them like this one of why. And I imagine you get the why question a lot, the implication being you're slightly unhinged for (laughs) embarking on this journey. But you make the case in the Oregon Trail that the answer to why really is the most basic answer. It's part of our national DNA as Americans. You were challenged by this. You saw this historical marker and you thought about the Oregon Trail and you accepted the challenge. And so I wanted to ask you about the breakdown between people who understood your drive to do this, to make this trip, and those who have sort of had that sense of adventure a little deadened by these modern comforts that we have. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, it sounds like an obscure way to answer the question, but uh, Sigmund Freud, his first published essay back in the 1880s, it might have been 1870s, was called Creative Dreamers and Poets. And, you know, he was exploring this whole new science of psychology at the time. And what he had discovered in meeting with a lot of patients was that creative people were different than normal people who went out every day and had a regular job and so forth, which was that we all daydream a lot. Daydreaming is something that occurs a lot and you get to a certain point in life where you accept it and you're not, you don't feel guilty about wasting time anymore. But what Freud found was a difference in daydreaming was the creative poet, the artist, the musician, or whatever, would use his or her daydreams 
to then go out and do that thing. So your Walter Mitty is something you would actually go out and do, which many people in the world consider impractical and unbalanced. Whereas the normal workaday world person will feel that the daydreams are just an intrusion and just something that they indulge, but they don't have to go out and do anything about it. So as someone who's just been devoted to books and writing and research and finding that all this knowledge I store up by being this incredible bookworm actually has a use, you know, I actually put it to use, it never occurred to me that it was an unrealistic dream. Of course, I had a horse background, so I felt empowered by that, but what sounds crazy to other people feels normal to me, and we all have this kind of personal autism that there's just something we can do that to other people seems eccentric, um, but it's actually who we are and what our destiny is. And it's something that was kind of implanted in you from when you were young, when your father took you on a covered wagon trip, not anything as long as this, but from New Jersey to Pennsylvania, and he hung a sign there that you sort of repurposed for this trip. Right. Tell people about that. Well, I think a lot of us who are middle-aged or older, and we've now raised our own children, we realized that all the conflicts and all the problems and all the wonderful memories we had, the whole composite of what childhood is, you kind of get a second chance to relive it with your own children. And this trip was like that because I think adulthood in a lot of ways is completed childhood. You know, when you're 21 or 23 and you're just out of college and you're going to burn up the world and you're starting out in life, the last thing you think of is, well, I want to go back and redo my childhood. But as you get older and more mature, you realize that there's always an unfinished agenda. There's always something about your past that keeps reaching forward over the years, 40 or 50 years, and informing who you are and what your behavior is. And so I had this wonderful mythical covered wagon trip as a seven-year-old with my dad in the late 1950s, and it was just a very strong memory. And I guess what I realized on the trip with all the flashbacks to my dad and everything and in writing the book was that um, it was unfinished business and it was such a mythical, wonderful junket for a father to share with his children that uh, there was something about it that I wanted to return to and complete. So that was a big factor in wanting to make a trip. And your father was an amazing character. Uh, you share a lot about that in the book. There's also a picture of him in the book. And again, I want people to pick up the Oregon Trail and sort of get this journey on their own. But I found myself going back to that picture of him on the bridge pulling the wagon Again and again, as I learn more about him, you pick it up when you look at it and you say, what's this man doing? And the, the look on his face, you, d you describe it very well in the book, too, the the way that you saw him. Yeah. And then you learn more about him and you say you learn about his service after the war and his, his injury. Again, not giving anything away because I, I want people to discover it on their own. And then you keep going back to that picture in the narrative and you see it a different way kind of each time you give us a little bit of information about your relationship with him. When you were a child, you'd pick up a lot of books and there wouldn't be a photo in there, not one photo. And you would say, gosh, I wish I knew what that person looked like. But that was just how publishing was, I guess, in some extent back then. I just wanted to thank you for sharing your personal photos in there. I just thought it added so much. Well, I think it was a big part of the story. But you're right to mention the pictures. The pictures are very important because I think what people do when they read a book like this is they go, well, you know, this guy's a writer and he definitely can write it. You know, it's pretty good that way. But the details of his life are so spectacular, you know, 
we'll give him his license. It's okay. He makes a lot of stuff up. But then when they see a picture of our covered wagon trip in the 1950s, and my dad, who had a wooden leg, by the way, right. is pulling all of his children stuffed into a covered wagon across the bridge because we couldn't get the horses across that bridge. There was a metal grating there, and they could look down and see the river, and they didn't want to cross that. It just actualizes that moment, and the reader comes along with you. There's another picture of my brother Nick in the early in the book. When you look at that picture of him, you go like, he's just this very jaunty guy with his cowboy hat up at an angle, and he's filthy dirty with a Fu Manchu mustache and sunburn and holding his dog up and everything. And you just look at that picture and you go, you know, I think I'm willing to read anything about this guy and believe it's true because he's obviously a character. So the pictures help a lot because they add a level of verisimilitude and truth that augment what the writer's words are. And also in the front of the book, you open up the Oregon Trail. Not only do you see your brother, but you see the very first thing is the, the map and the pictures of the wagon. And mm -hmm. gosh, this guy pulled his whole family in a cart with a wooden leg across a bridge. Mm -hmm. And his reason for it, I'd mentioned the sign. Sorry to be in your way. Or what was it exactly? We're sorry for the delay, but we want our children to see America yeah. slowly. Um, Morristown, Gettysburg, blah, blah, blah. Um, it was just a sign that he put on the back of the wagon just in case we were on a road that had some traffic and the traffic backed up behind us. And he wanted to explain to people why they were seeing a covered wagon going by in, in modern America. And so we took that sign actually and flipped it on the back where nothing was written and wrote our own version of it, which was, we're sorry for the delay, but we want to see America slowly in big, big capital letters. And it's funny, people saw that sign and they instantly got it. And they would just pull around us. Sometimes we were on a highway. Sometimes, of course, we were on just little dirt roads. And they'd pull around us and they'd say, how far are you going? And we'd go, we're going all the way to Oregon. And yeah, yeah, yeah. There was something about that sign, See America Slowly, that symbolized what we were doing and what they were observing in our covered wagon that made people instantly get it. You drew huge crowds and sometimes because you are trying to navigate with the mules and things spook them. There's one point where the, a woman stops, I believe, and starts flashing off pictures and the mules are not liking this too much. Right. People might think this is just sort of a gentleman, farmer, quirky guy, but this was really a challenge to you. And you meet all these great people along the way. But in addition to people that are alive and can pull up in their car, you also introduce us to a lot of the people who made the trail in the first place and brought them there. And one in particular, Narcissa Whitman. Sure. So tell us her story. Well, one of the things that really drew me to wanting to write about the Oregon Trail is that the real history is so much more truthful, so much more quintessentially American than the myths they passed down to us as school children. So what happened in the late 1830s, early 1940s, when um, a lot of Americans wanted to finish the continental space in the U.S., but they were afraid to go past the frontier, the 2,000 miles between the Missouri and the Columbia Rivers, because it was either called the Great American Desert or the Indian Territory. And there were a number of fears, but primarily they were about the Indians and crossing the rivers, which Americans were very much afraid of. And this was a place, as the famous Indian painter George Caitlin said at the time, where no white woman could go. No white woman should be there, and any man who took her there was somehow, in his view, un-American. And so Narcissa Whitman, who was a young evangelist from New York State during a period when there was a lot of religious revival in the country, she um, decided after conversion experience that she wanted to become a missionary to the Indians across the trail in what is now Washington State. And... 
So she took a trip in 1836 with her new husband, who was also a missionary. And she sent a series of letters home that were widely read in America because letters like that at the time were published in the newspapers. And she was a very gifted writer, very descriptive. She called the caravan that she was following in the covered wagon with her husband the moving village across the plains. And in her letters home, she conquered all the fears of America. She said she'd never been healthier or happier, that this hard, sandy soil of the plains made for a much better highway than uh, what we call turnpikes back east. She had delightful fun time being carted across the rivers, usually by Indian braves in canoes and bull boats and that sort of thing. So these letters electrified Americans, especially after they learned that she had conceived on the trail and then had a baby when she reached the Pacific coast. And that was, by the way, uh, riding horseback most of the way. So the belief that you couldn't take your family along and that this was no place for civilized people and that it had never been proven. No one had ever taken a wagon all the way across until Narcissa Whitman and Marcus Whitman took one. And it changed everything. As soon as she crossed and people read her letters back east, they knew it was safe for them to go, too. And it's kind of like in modern times, Cheryl Strayed walked the Pacific Crest Trail and wrote a book about it called Wild, a very successful book. And now the trail traffic has quadrupled on the Pacific Crest Trail hmm. just because people read her book and said, I want to do that, too. So the same kind of Me Tooism effect affected 19th century Americans. And once they read Narcissa Whitman's tale of crossing in 1836, it's never been done before. She was the first white woman across the Rockies. And all of a sudden, the floodgates were open. And by the 1840s, you had thousands of people crossing every year. We're speaking with author Rinker Buck, and the book is The Oregon Trail, A New American Journey. We want to remind you to like his Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash Rinker Buck. More stuff there about the book, because I trust you won't want to stop hearing about the trip and about your brother, and you'll post some good stuff there, because you really do get to know you in this. I I'm sure I'm not the first person just picks up the phone and decides to start shooting stories back and forth with you. I have to stop myself because you don't know me, but I really got to know you here through this. You posted about book signings, and I see you're getting big crowds. USA Today gave the book its maximum of four stars and said, quote, the best travel memoirs tell three stories at once about the author, the trip itself, and the territory being traveled. You did that, and I wanted to say, as with the mules, the territory is really a character in the Oregon Trail. It's sometimes the antagonist. It's sometimes helping you. You're admiring it. It's beautiful one moment. It's deadly the next. I wanted to know how you found a balance between that when you're writing the book. Well, every good book is a collaboration with your editor. And the first version I turned in was a little long. And he would say, okay, we're getting bored here. You've got three pioneer quotes on the same subject. <laughs> Cut it down to one. That sort of thing. That's why you need editing, because every author is more enthusiastic about his material than his readers are ever going to possibly be. I sort of made a couple rules. It's like there's, there was so much Oregon Trail history that you could relate that I tried to restrict myself to issues and what was happening on the places where we were also visiting at the time so I could compare old and new. But other than that, it's just the standard writing techniques of a good narrative writer, which is you have pace. You give a lot of information and detail on this. For instance, one of my favorite sections is about this historian, Randy Brown, out in Wyoming, who's dedicated his whole life to just one thing, which is Oregon Trail graves. 
There were, of course, huge cholera outbreaks up the trail. And why that work was interesting and why that work was significant, among other things, if you can find the graves and identify the people who are in those graves, you actually know where the trail really was as opposed to official marked trail because they tended to bury people very close to where they were actually running their wagons through. But you learn other things from studying the dead. Where were they crossing the fords? Why were they in this area and not that area? How much luggage and stuff they were carrying. It's just pretty fascinating. So what you're trying to do in pacing the narrative is always remember that you're telling a story. You're not providing information. It's not just a history book that's kind of uh, ponderous and academic. There's always a story you have to be telling. And it's not really just your story either. It's a story of so many people. And I thought also that I didn't get the true story of what their experience was with the native people of the West. And I don't think anyone really has a fully accurate idea of it. And that sort of leads from Narcissa Whitman. What was the relationship there in the beginning of the Oregon Trail between the native people and these streams of wagons early? There was tremendous fear on the part of Americans that the heathens, as they call them, of the plains, the plains tribes, would be hostile and murderous and, you know, uncivilized and all that. But in fact, if you go back and you look at Native American history, the tribes themselves were very, very different from each other. They had different customs. It's extraordinary that so many big tribes occupying roughly the same landmass had completely different languages and customs and so forth. So the Indians had been used to, over the centuries, confronting an entirely new people or entirely different people. Just think of the difference, say, between the Pueblos and then the Quinault Indians, say, up on the Pacific Northwest. It is a completely different lifestyle. So when the white man came along, a lot of their reaction was, well, this is just a different tribe. It, I mean, they're, they're way different than the other tribes we know, but we're used to that. There's always some big difference. And so initially they received the white Europeans as if they were just another tribe. And because they were trading with them, they could envision a profitable and a, and a familiar relationship. And so that lasted for 15, 20 years without their Shoshone and Sioux guides, particularly the uh, Sioux Rivermen, the Sioux were great boatmen. Whenever the covered wagon train showed up at a port, all the young Indian boys would rush down and try and make a little or trade or whatever in return for helping the wagons get across the river, and they instinctively looked at a wagon and knew what to do. They put buffalo robes underneath the wagon to give it more buoyancy and that sort of thing. And, of course, they were great with cattle and, and horses. So that was how the relationship opened and continued for about 20, 25 years, right up until the Civil War. And then when it became clear that the Americans were not going to respect the trees, that their hunting grounds wouldn't be protected, that it was the official policy of the white man, and in fact it was the official policy of the United States government, to slaughter the buffalo. And so therefore the Indians were losing their protein source, they were losing their whole life if you took away the buffalo. They only became hostile after that, which is another myth that we tell our kids that they were inherently hostile. And in fact the history was quite different from that. They uh, welcomed the white man there, and, and as I said, without their Indian guides, most of the early pioneers would never have gotten across. 
Sometimes they would come help them. Sometimes people would die. You faced a lot of those same dangers in the book, some high drama moments of if this wagon overturns, you can get killed, you can get trampled by the mules, all these things. Yep. And I thought, you're so tired and you're bouncing along. When did you have time to take notes? Did you rely on memory for a lot of this? Because you get some real small details in there that make the Oregon Trail so memorable. No, I took notes every night. I took notes in an old-fashioned way in uh, paper notebooks. I filled up two notebooks and then a bunch of little reporters' notebooks. I probably came back with about 30,000 words that I recorded along the way. I also sent a, a long series of letters. When we took a day or two off to fix the wagon or let the mules rest, I would take an afternoon and write a long letter home, you know, a letter from Muddy Creek, letter from Independence Rock, wherever we were just to reassure my family that we were okay and that everything was going well. So I had those and I had my notebooks, and I was pretty meticulous about it. There were some nights when I was too exhausted, but most days I could spend a half an hour or 45 minutes after dinner taking notes about what happened that day. And I had an instinct about what would be important to remember and so forth, and I'd write down conversations and things like that. But uh, I had a really strong record to go back to when it was time to write the book. How did the journey on the trail change you by the time you were at the end? Well, I think the biggest thing that occurred to me is I felt better about myself because I realized the eccentricities of character and the desire to dream and get away from the boredom and the ennui of life wasn't so odd after all because it actually pushed me in a direction that produced something valid and important. So I felt better about myself because, uh, well, maybe it's not so bad that you're this guy that has a low threshold for boredom and can't stand the set of world too long and all that. If you were someone who was more conventional, maybe I wouldn't have taken this trip. Well, certainly I wouldn't have taken this trip. But the other thing that changed me that I felt very confident about, there was a lot of little things like navigating my foot across the wilderness where the trail isn't marked and, you know, your brother back in the wagon and three mules and a dog and everything are depending on you to get it right. It, some of the navigation was very, very difficult because the trail wasn't really clearly marked in certain areas. And it was very satisfying to be able to solve problems like that. But the biggest thing for me was a clarification or legitification of my view that what we are is very cautious in our society. And these kids get out from college and they talk about things and they have their whole careers planned and they're barely in their mid-20s. They want expectation. They associate success with networking and planning and everything. And what I learned on this trip is you just have to go out and believe you can do it, not knowing you have all the answers and probably aware that you're going to run into a lot of obstacles and hardship along the way. But, you know, nothing is final. There's no decision that they're final. You can always wake up the next morning and fix it and make a mid-course correction. So that was a very valuable lesson for me because impetuosity, which we tend not to value in our culture, can actually be a very tolerable and good thing if you're willing to change course and fix it, you know, fail make a mistake, whatever. We made a lot of mistakes. But you're willing to face up to the need to just live with day in and day out, fixing all your mistakes. I was talking to one of our interns today, and it was a similar thing about being that age. And I gave her a copy of the Oregon Trail. So I'm kind of blown away that you brought it up. But <laughs> I said the job that we have now, we wouldn't have been able to have. We wouldn't be able to be talking over the radio or any of that back in the day of the Oregon Trail or even back in in our youth, certainly there wasn't the Internet. There wasn't all these things that you have today that are whole careers that people have. So I said, you really just have to go at it, you know, getting whatever your covered wagon is and roll forward. And what comes comes. And as long as you get to a realistic 
destination, something like happiness. Mm -hmm. I think that's just a great message for people because you do have so much to overcome along the way and relearn. No one could tell you these things. Literally nobody alive had done this journey that you describe in the Oregon Trail. No, they couldn't tell us whether we really could get our mules over California Hill or not or how often we'd have to reshoe the mules. And when the harness was causing the mules to have some sores on their body, work sores, which can get very dangerous if, if you let them go and they get infected and everything. Uh, we had to figure out what to do. And what we did was my brother cut up some old felt, some old pieces of leather we had that was more supple than the leather that was on the harness, and we fixed it, and the sores went away. Uh, yeah, you're going to have a lot of problems, and your life is all about solving problems along the way. It's not about a linear path to success. And I think a lot of what happens in today's society is people want to know. They want to have a plan. They want to have it made out for several years, et cetera, et cetera. And we were living much more spontaneously than that. And as I say in the book, I learned to live with uncertainty. And I became comfortable with uncertainty in a lifestyle like that because I became comfortable with the day-to-day problem-solving of every little crisis that came along. And how much weight did you lose by the end of the trip? I lost 30 pounds, (laughs) and that was not even with a whole lot of working at it. It's just I probably walked an average of five or six miles a day, some days more. I probably ended up walking six or 700 miles of trail, A, because you get so sleepy and exhausted up on the wagon seat all day that I was afraid I was going to fall off, and a couple times I actually did catch myself almost falling off, in which case you'd either get crushed by the wheels or fall into the mules. So I'd get off and walk for a couple hours just to get my circulation going again, get me woken up. And then I did a whole lot of walking ahead of the wagon in the wilderness areas. There's stretches of the trail that are identical to what they were in the 19th century, and you just go through this endless open desert that hasn't changed since pioneer days. And in those places, we would frequently either get lost or be threatened with getting lost because the trail wasn't always marked very well in some of those areas. And we didn't have the advantage that the 19th century pioneers had, which was there's a covered wagon train ahead of you that you could just follow their dust. And also the trail was so littered with old bacon barrels and pianos and everything the pioneers started throwing out that you could literally navigate by the debris pile. So at any rate, I walked in the morning to stay awake, and then I walked a lot in the afternoon to find out where we were and where the trail should be, and it just naturally took the weight off, you know. Well, you've given us a good chunk of your time, and we're now at the end of the trail. I wanted to say we've put mule shoes in Oregon, although I had a much more comfortable trip, and so did you this time. But one last question. Sure. Do you feel the pull to mount another expedition like this, or have you had your fill of mid-19th century travel? No. I've got another wagon. As soon as all the hubbub and book tour and everything is over, I'm probably going to get another team of mules. I've got something else I'm going to do. I've got a whole new project that doesn't have to do with wagon travel. It's going to be a boat journey, again, driven by a period of history that's very important. But no, I I really like that hobo life. I like that itinerant life. Over the next few summers, I'm probably going to take a one-month or six-week tour somewhere, what I call a sheep camp, which is a slightly different covered wagon. And I'll do it in the Northeast or go to some part of the country that I really want to see. I'd like to see the sand hills of Nebraska. I haven't been up there. So, uh, no, it's not over for me. It was an intoxicating, arduous, romantic journey. I'm longing to do it again. Well, I'm certainly going to look forward to it. And since the book is a New York Times bestseller, clearly other people are looking to do it too. 
The book is, again, The Oregon Trail, A New American Journey. My guest has been Rinker Buck. Thank you so much, not just for joining me, but for writing the book and sharing all this. Well, Dean, it was great to be here, and I, uh, I really appreciate the time you've taken on this. Well, absolutely. It was my pleasure. Please say hello to Nick for me. I will say hello to Nick for you. <laughs> Take care. See you now, Dean. Again, the book is The Oregon Trail, A New American Journey. You can like Rinker Buck at facebook.com slash rinkerbuck. As always, you can find the link to purchase The Oregon Trail or any other book you've heard us talk about at our website, historyauthor.com. And remember, we get a few strips of smoked beef in one of those big Oregon Trail barrels every time you buy a book on our site. I want to once again thank Mr. Buck for joining me and for letting us tag along on this trip into the dusty past. And remember, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at HistoryDean or at Facebook.com slash HistoryAuthor. Well, that's it for this week's installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us next Monday morning when we upload another trip into the past here on iHeartRadio, iTunes, or wherever we're lucky enough to have caught your ear. Until then, thanks so much for hitching your wagon to ours, and happy reading. (music) 